Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor. And I am so happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guests on the April 26th show, copywriter Julia Black. Julia and I chatted about how companies and individuals can share their stories effectively online. You can connect with Julia at her website, www.blacksmithwriting.com. If you miss that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the April 26th show, at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message and we really should share it with the youth, guys. But it's not just for the youth. Remember, the world needs your genius too. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, I am absolutely delighted to introduce tonight's guest. She is doing amazing work to help bridge vital communication gaps and promote understanding and empathy between law enforcement and the communities they serve. Trusty Loving is president and founder of the Institute for Racial Equity, a law enforcement training program dedicated to improving race relations between law enforcement professionals and their communities. With over 25 years of global expertise, Trusty uses her military experience and dynamic speaking style to dismantle unconscious biases and stereotypes combating discriminatory and prejudiced behaviors from the root. The result is long-lasting organizational improvements, including an end to profiling tendencies. Dedicated to providing honest, straightforward data, Trusty has enabled police departments and corporations to operate in a highly productive, strategic, and aware manner. Trusty's speaking engagements take her all over the country, so she can positively impact communities throughout the United States. Okay, so I would like to welcome Trustee Loving to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I appreciate it. Well, you and I met at a conference and struck up wonderful conversation, and I was utterly fascinated by what you do and so I'd like to go ahead and get you to share what you do. And the way that I do this is I ask two questions. And if you're ready for those two questions, I'll ask them now. Y'all set? I'm ready. All right. So my two questions are, Trusty Loving, who are you and how did you become who you are today? Wow, two hard-hitting questions. Okay, who am I? I am a wife. I am a coach. I am a 
woman who knows what she wants, knows where she wants to go, and is not afraid to ask for help to get there. Uh, how did I become who I was, who I am? That starts off with a couple of things. One, I grew up in a small town in Kentucky, so I have small town values and small town uh, being, knowing everyone and knowing everyone's business as well. So mm. <laughs> that, that kind of made me. And then I, um, the Navy, definitely helped me grow up. The Navy helped me shape the kind of person that I wanted to be and the, the person that I am today. And finally, this new stage of life that I've embarked on is with this coaching and in particular coaching around race, ethnicity, and religion. So I think that's it. So that's what really, you know, that's what really fascinated me in particular was, you know, you came from this, you know, pretty, when you're in a small town, relatively speaking, I think you have kind of a nice comforting environment in a lot of ways, even when you do have, you know, I was not saying you never have racial issues or anything like that, but I think people get used to each other at a certain level in right. smaller places so that you kind of navigate and you operate differently than in a big city where, you know, people don't really know each other and it's easier to be distant and be kind of even cruel to each other, you know, on right. a day-to-day -day basis in a way that I don't think you can be in a small town because everybody knows everybody, right? Yeah, exactly. So you come from that environment, you go into the Navy. How did it help you grow up? In what way did it, it shape you into who you wanted to be and who you are today? Well, I was very naive when I joined the Navy because I was from a small town. So I joined the Navy when I was 21 years old, but I hadn't traveled anywhere. I really did not go around a city that much in the biggest city was like 30,000, 40,000 people. So I grew up fast. And I grew up fast because I was around people that uh, I had never been around before as far as race and ethnicity. I grew up around people who were, who did not know me. And so that took a little bit of me to get used to, to deal with people who didn't know me because I was so used to people knowing who I was that I kind of had it on easy street, if you will. You know, everybody knew I played sports. Everyone knew I was an honor graduate. Everyone knew, you know, like I said, everything about me. So I didn't have to navigate anything really. You know, it was just understood. I know who you are you know who I am, and that's the way it was. Well, when I joined the Navy and met people that did not know who I was, and I had to try to introduce myself to them, boy, did I get a rude awakening. I was stumbling over words, and I was actually kind of quiet. I I'm not quiet now, but when I came in the Navy, I was actually kind of quiet. So once I got used to being in the Navy though, and I got used to a larger pool of people that I was around and that I got to know, then I became the person that I am today, which is very boisterous, uh, very engaging in conversation because I love to meet new people and learn about people. So that's where I am now. I actually, that's how I grew up. I grew up by learning more about people and learning to get, a, get 
comfortable with being around people that I did not know that well. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you, is that where your interest in, you know, race and diversity and, and people kind of learning to live and work together really developed? Yes, in the Navy. Uh, I actually, I was in the Navy for 26 years. And of the 26 years, I did diversity and equal opportunity issues for about 17 years. So more than half of my career, that's what I knew best. Mm -hmm. And that's what I found that I enjoyed best. I didn't know how well I would like it or how good I would be at the job. But once I actually got into doing the job and doing research and again, finding out about people, then I just absolutely loved it. And I didn't want to stop doing what I was doing. And actually I did not stop doing what I was doing. I was rather blessed that I had the opportunity to stay in this one professional well, this one profession for as long as I did in the Navy. So what did your work in the Navy entail that you found so interesting? Well, we had two different parts to our program. We had an equal opportunity advisor portion, and then we had the diversity portion, which came in a little bit later in my Navy career. But the equal opportunity advisor portion I loved because I got to help somebody every single day. Someone who was talked down to, someone who may have been discriminated against, someone who may have been, uh, had some kind of racism toward them. And the best part was I got to work for my boss. And working for the boss makes it very good to uh, be able to carry out duties and responsibilities. And since I got to work directly for my boss, which was the big boss, uh, it made it easy to do what I needed to do as far as I had the authority and the responsibility to do it. But it didn't make it any easier to deal with the issues that I dealt with. And I also dealt with sexism, I dealt with sexual assault, and I dealt with sexual harassment as well. Oh, wow. And those are really serious issues right now in particular in the wake of the We Rise movement and all of that. Or let me rephrase, in the wake of the We Rise movement being noticed since (laughs) since, uh, Hollywood starlets got involved in this, you know, (laughs) Since white Hollywood starlets got involved, now it's a, a, a movement that people take note of, even though it's been going on for a long time. Right. Um, so let me uh, ask you then, because I've heard and you know, you know, read in the past that sexual assault, um, sexual harassment, pretty serious issues in the military in general. Um, Was that something you dealt with a lot while you were in your military career? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, Sexual assaults were way too common in the everyday scheme of doing our jobs. Uh, Not that it would happen every day, but sexual harassment usually happened every day. And so there was something that dealt with sex that wasn't good that I dealt with on a daily basis. Mm. And there's no easy way to deal with either sexual harassment or sexual assault, except to deal with it head on but deal with it with the, the victim is to deal with them in a way that you're not only straightforward with them, but you have 
a emotional tie with them that kind of circumvents other things. And, and for example, like I said, I had certain responsibilities, but because of my connection I might have with a young lady or a young man who was either sexually harassed or sexually assaulted, then my responsibilities kind of grew exponentially. So I, I was responsible for a lot more than just what happened and the facts of the case, but helping that person deal with it, helping that person get the right help that they needed so they could succeed or so they could just get through the next day. It just depended. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, and, and I do want to be fair, the military has been working at addressing uh, these issues, just like I think they have been working at addressing uh, racial issues, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, they have. They, that we actually, I still say we, like I'm still in the Navy. <laughs> uh, before I got out, we, there I go again, the Navy actually changed the reporting responsibilities and the way people could report, which made it easier to report. It made it uh, to where you could report and no one know who you were as being the accusing party. And that made a huge difference. And it wasn't just the Navy, the whole military, uh, we came up with a different type of reporting system because we saw that we were lacking a lot into why people would not come forward. Mm -hmm. They felt as though they would be reprised against or take some negative action taken toward them for reporting. And also it made it hard for someone to remain in a competitive way as far as being able to advance in their career or to participate in certain programs, only because the person would feel so bad about the situation that they weren't themselves. They, you know, they lost a lot of who they were. And so we recognized that and said, you know, the reporting definitely needs to change. Well, that's good. Because, I mean, that's the difficult situation for corporate America as well. It's not just a government or military type issue. And I think the military has a history of not moving quickly, but mm -hmm. oftentimes moving first in a lot of areas, like in, in desegregation, for example, because they just saw it, this is not practical. This is not going to work for us. How are we supposed to win wars like this, right? Right. And at some point they said, okay, we've got to stop this and really moved ahead of the country in so many ways. That's true. And I would say that we lagged behind a little bit in the sexual harassment, sexual assault arena, only because it the same pressures that were put on when we were talking about race issues in the military was the same thing dealing with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It was like, how can we be a productive, successful organization if these females are around causing all these problems? That's the way it was looked. It, it was actually looked like that the females were causing the problems, even though males were sexually harassed and sexually assaulted, it was looked at as a female issue. And also you didn't have the outside societal pressure, whereas with racial issues, a lot of the changes that were taking place were actually taking place while there were outside societal pressures as well. Correct. Yes. And it did take, it has taken society uh, a long time to catch up with sexual harassment and sexual assault. And 
I would say now though, because of the changes that were made in reporting, that the military actually may be a little ahead of the game as far as sexual harassment and sexual assault. Wow. Well, that's actually, that doesn't surprise me on a certain level. Like I said, the, the government, because of its tendency to try to keep everything, I don't want to say fair, but maybe equitable is a better word. <laughs> a little yeah, bit that's equitable. Yes. Um, I think there's a tendency that to develop systems and processes that tend to be a little bit, they're, they're challenging to navigate, but they're challenging for everybody in the same way, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes. That's a very good way to put it. Very good way to put it. So how did that, how did you move from that to what you're doing now with the coaching on racial and diversity issues and who do you work with primarily? Primarily now I work with police and sheriff departments around the country and the, it was actually kind of a natural progression from what I was doing in the Navy on active duty to moving it ahead in the civilian world for me. I, I knew I couldn't work for any one particular agency or corporation as far as race and diversity and ethnicity went. And I also knew that there were certain sectors of our society who were having worse issues than other sectors of our society with dealing with race and diversity and ethnicity. And unfortunately, I, I don't know too many people who aren't aware of the issues with police and sheriffs, of uh, police officers and sheriff's deputies where there is a lot of stereotyping that's done and decisions are based heavily on those stereotypes. And there is a way that stereotypes can be handled. There's a way that stereotypes can be addressed to where people don't feel like you're pointing at them, but you're working with them to make things better for everyone. Mm -hmm. And are you finding that these, well, I mean, let me ask you this. Are you approaching the sheriff's offices or police offices, you know, the police departments, or are they approaching you saying we need help? How is that, how does that happen? It actually, unfortunately, happens where I have to approach that department to say, hey, you know, looking at your stats over the last two or three or five years, I've noticed a trend happening. And that trend is A, B, C, whatever the trend may be. And there are very, very few departments who will contact someone who does what I do and say, you know, we just can't get this together and we are going down a, a very, very bad road. So can you come in and help us? Because they're not even sure exactly what they need help with. Mm -hmm. So what, what is it that you flag? What do you look at to decide who you're going to approach? I look at one, what their track record is in a particular city or in a particular suburb. Look to see what their track record is. And it's easy to find out those statistics. The FBI does an excellent job and so does the Department of Justice as a whole does an excellent job of collecting that data. So it's easy to find. And so that's one thing that I look at. Another thing I look at is just how bad it's been on TV for this particular department. You know, like some departments are a little bit worse off than other departments. 
-hmm. and it doesn't matter what doesn't yes it doesn't matter what part of the country that these departments are in it's just that certain departments tend to have a worse track record of dealing with race and ethnicity and with religion as far as it goes to you know the people they protect and serve so that's another thing that i look at and the final thing i really look at is what the people in the communities are saying about their particular department whether their department is proactive when there's an issue or if their department just denies, denies, denies all the time in the face of what data there really is to prove otherwise. So there are actually three areas that I look at. Well, and like that FBI data, as I, or I don't know if you're looking at, are you looking at, are they having shootings, like, like what gets into the news, or are you looking at arrest rates or ticketing rates? Like, for example, they talked about in Ferguson that there, even though um, African-Americans made up such a small proportion of the people in the, the whole metro area, they ended up being like some astronomical number percentage of the number of people ticketed, for example, things of that nature. Is that the kind of stuff that you're looking at? And if so, how does the FBI get that data? Because when I read up on that, it sounded like police departments, sheriff's offices offered that data voluntarily. So that meant there were tons and tons of places that just plain didn't provide it. Um, first of all, all the above of what you asked originally, it's, um, it's a conglomeration of all the things that I mentioned previously. Now, the data that is, there is some data that is optional to report mm -hmm. to the FBI or Department of Justice. And then there are things that are not optional to report. And that would be the number of arrests for African-Americans in this particular area. Okay. That's not optional to report because there's no other way to gather any useful, meaningful data than making certain things reportable. So those things are reportable. There are many different ways that data can be collected other than too by the FBI and the Department of Justice. And some of that is once again going back to the actual area of, of um, the actual area that the physical area that someone is in, and then also the area of what type of law enforcement are we talking about. And I'll just say case in point, uh, racial profiling is hard for a department to report on themselves is because they don't actually believe that they're racially profiling. But to get some good data from that would be a, to actually ask the communities that they are protecting and serving how they feel that arrests are or stops are done or you know any myriad of things that go into reporting uh, data for a particular department. So is, are those um, like surveys or whatever that you would do or that other organizations have done and you're utilizing their data to find out what the community thinks? It's actually, to start off with, it's actually using other organizations that collect that data because there are so many organizations who collect data on just about every aspect of policing there is. Mm -hmm. And so their data is, once again, first of all, is trying to find that data. But once you've been doing this, um, this type of work for as long as I have, you pretty much know the types of organizations that collect that data. Mm 
-hmm. So it's really easy to go find the organization that would have the data. And then to be more specific for a particular department, I would go out into the uh, communities and do my own type of research to figure out what is, you know, trending or what is, you know, this is just a fluke and it just happened to be in these particular years that this happened or something to that effect. And there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about briefly, and you mentioned it is, this is an actual stat that black males make up 6% of the total US population for males, yet they make up 40% of all those who have been killed by white police officers and while the person has been unarmed. So that's that astronomical difference that you see, you know, 6% to 40%, that's something that's that when I first read the stat, I was shocked that it was, you know, that far apart. But yeah, so that's, that's a case in point to what you were talking about, that the data's out there. It's just knowing where to look for it. Okay. So what kinds of things do you actually work with the officers on? So let's say I'm, I'm a police chief and I, I call you in and say, hey, let's do this. What do you talk to the officers about? How does your uh, coaching work? First, I start talking to them about how they got to be where they are in life in meaning that how they were socialized or how they were raised and the things that go into their socialization process like passing down customs, traditions, values, beliefs, language, and so forth. Those are things that can give the why someone is the way they are, why they have the stereotypes, stereotypes they have, why they have the beliefs that they have, why their language is the way it is. That's uh, the, the fun part, if you will, for me, is to talk to people about that and to see how surprised they are sometimes at where their socialization came from. We know it's parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, but additionally, socialization comes from your friends, from your teachers from your school and a big part is media and the media that I'm talking about are not only the stories that are, are reported and the frequency that they're reported, but also the way people are stereotyped in movies, on TV shows. So there's a lot that goes into the why people are how they are. And I first need to understand the why before I can tell them the how and the what they can do about where they are currently and how they can, you know, move themselves more closer to the middle and instead of from one extreme to another. So I'm curious, are, do you have like a cultural, like a cross-cultural training uh, part. You know, I just recall living in uh, Guatemala some years mm -hmm. ago and getting kind of cross, or, or actually it was Mexico, some cross-cultural training mm -hmm. that made me go, oh, okay, I would not have taken this particular behavior or this particular uh, phrasing in this particular way. I would have, so for example, uh, we talk about this with regard to many of the Asian cultures, how they have a, tendency, mm -hmm. have a concept called saving face. And that basically means everybody wants to have a nice way out of things. That's an oversimplification. Mm -hmm. And so there's a tendency for folks to not want to say no to you, but to um, say no in a very nice way. 
<laughs> that's the way I'm going to put it. That's a way right. of simplification. Well, there's a similar thing in um, Mexican culture, particularly in business culture, where people won't necessarily say no to you, but mm -hmm. things kind of don't get done. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, they won't say, no, that can't be done by, you know, in the U.S., they'll say, well, wh how much time do you need to do something? And right. you might say to your boss, I need, you know, two weeks and we can get that done, or I need a month, or it'll take six weeks, whatever it is. And there, there's a deadline. And we're like, no, we can get that done in amount of, an amount of time. If they don't think they can get it done, sometimes they just will kind of like tell you they can get it done and then it just doesn't get done right. and it's not meant to be an affront but we interpret it differently do you have some things like that incorporated into your training because you know i think about speech patterns you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you go to different countries and people speak differently um you know um i remember being in haiti and i'm listening to this conversation i don't speak haitian creole I know a few phrases as I'm mm -hmm. listening to the folks near me speaking and I hear everybody, it, to me, it just sounds like shouting at one point. I'm like, oh right. no, because in the U.S. that means a fight's about to break out, right? Right. Black <laughs> yeah. folks shooting, exactly. shouting like that. You're like, oh, okay, they're about to fight. Should I run? What should I do? Look for, look for cover. What should I be doing? And next thing you know, everybody busts out laughing. And I'm like, right. what's going on? All they were doing was negotiating a rate for a tap tap. I had no idea. So I'm wondering, do, are there portions of the training or coaching that goes into some of those cultural cues and physical and vocal cues that maybe a, a white officer might find threatening that really isn't threatening? That's just the way white folks tend to talk and interact? Yes, there are. But I find that Diversity training does a really good job of that, mm -hmm. where they talk, they, if you will, break down the cultures and the religions and, and tell you, well, if you hear this or like certain people do like to talk louder than others. Like if you go to Middle Eastern countries, they tend to talk very, very loud. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like they're yelling at you. Mm -hmm. But they're not yelling at you. They're just talking to you. Mm -hmm. Or there could be the distance, the proximity where people stand when they talk to each other. Like Italians, um, they like to get right up in your face and talk to you, right? Yeah. And, but some people are like, no, you need to back up because now you're in my intimate area. Right. So... There, there are the diversity training that I've seen and that I've conducted does a very, very good job at breaking down the cultural aspects. However, if depending on what I hear people saying, then I will do some cultural breakdowns too. It's like, well, you know, black people scare me because they talk so gruff or whatever they can come up with. And it's like, well, why do you say that? And, and again, it's like, where, where's this data coming from? And let me set you back on the correct path to where this is what's really true. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, and have you found that the officers going through the training tend to be receptive and they tend to feel like they've gotten something out of it or are they resistant? What, what's your experience with that? My experience has been the majority of them are receptive. They like to know how they appear to other people. So that's why they want to know us like, what are my stereotypes? What, what am I saying? Why am I not coming across the way I should? So, you know, there's always one or two who are just going to be how they are. And there's nothing I can do about them anyway. They're just going to be the way they are. And there's no amount of talking, explaining, or anything that's going to change their mind. But for the majority and for the most part, people are actually receptive. So how do you feel things are going as far as shifting this kind of energy that we've been dealing with in the United States, particularly in 
in the last, you know, what, five years, I guess, has been particularly rough with social media and, and protests and, and, you know, all of that regarding race relations with yes. police departments. How do you feel like things are, are going? Are things shifting in the right direction or in a, in a positive direction? And, uh, and how I, do you feel that, that, that the police forces are dealing with that? I can say that I think that as far as departments, that they are trying to shift in the right direction, but it's easier said than done. I would say as for the country as a whole, uh, no, we're not shifting in the right direction at all. And there are so many reasons why that's true. And there's not any one or two reasons why that's true, but there are many reasons why that's true. But I do believe that if we stay the course and start pointing out things that are, um, that are incongruent with who we say we want to be as a country, that we want to be a welcoming country, that we want to be a diverse country, that we want to offer opportunities to as many other people in the world as we can, then if we stay that course, I think that we will start shifting to a better way of doing business, but we still have quite a ways to go before we get there. You know what I, I worry about just as a, just my observation, racial and ethnic divides in the United States are proving to be easily exploitable by outsiders. And I think it's actually a national security issue at this point. Now, I'm not a national security expert, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to claim that before anybody get all mad and say, Michelle, what do you know about national security? You know, but I do think that it's, it's a national security risk factor for us that has not been well considered by those people who are exploiting um, the, the, the divisions internally, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, have you, I mean, I don't know if you're still in contact with military folks or do you know if any of them are talking about it from that perspective? Yes, I, I still have, uh, quite a few friends who are associated with the military and there is a national security concern and the concern is more toward the fact that we might get um, overzealous in wanting to welcome everyone to our country. And it may not be in our best interest to do that. But there's this fine line that has to be walked between what we're saying is national security and what we're just being xenophobic about. So, um, and who makes that determination? Well, uh, there are quite a few people who make that determination, but one great organization that I think that we should look toward for more maybe guidance and uh, thought is for Homeland Security. Uh, Homeland Security is exactly that, Homeland Security. And I think that sometimes with our well-intentioned wanting to make everybody feel welcome in this country, that not everybody should be welcome in this country. And the best gauge for that is the Department of Homeland Security. So what about, and, and again, this is me, I'm pushing the issue a little bit because I saw it happen in the last election as uh, possible foreign entities, and I'm, I'm saying possible mm -hmm. foreign entities, because again, I'm not involved in investigating anything. So I'm just looking at the news and I'm looking at what was going on, um, possibly uh, exploiting internal divisions to mm -hmm. 
create a particular situation with the electorate. Right. Doesn't that seem, is that not something that folks are talking about in, you know, military circles and homeland security type circles and whatnot as well? That seems more dangerous to me than, you know, letting, uh, letting in families from, you know, Guatemala. So that's why I asked the question. Right. Um, and I say this with some caution here that I believe that there was some exploitation of how we're divided in our country and that was used against us. And it was used against us in a very, very unusual way as far as you know, determining outcomes of certain things. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the caution I use with that is, is that we're not looking toward some outside entity to be the one who's exploiting us more than we're exploiting ourselves, if that oh. makes sense. Okay, so so folks who are, they're not seeing that as a national security threat from the outside. They're seeing that as, as something that we're doing to ourselves internally. It can be, yes, yes. But not, well, I mean, as, not as far as um, like we are divided along racial and ethnic uh, groups right now. And so someone from the outside of our country can make that divide look even worse than it is. So it's looking at everything as a whole. You have to look at the whole process and look at all the data that there is out there. And I think that we exploit ourselves worse than we allow others to exploit us. And that's even with all of the revelations about how Facebook was used and, mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. With all that, because okay. it, it's hard to, from what, I under, from what I have researched, it's hard to know where fake news begins and real news ends. And so say, having said that, it's hard for me to say that someone outside the country is exploiting us more than we're exploiting ourselves with talking about our own fake news and what's real news and mm -hmm. how we look at media and how media has been portrayed uh, just within the confounds of our country. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow, that is, you've given a lot to think about and a lot of really, really valuable knowledge and, and experience here. I really appreciate it, Tressy. So what do you have going on? What do you want our listeners to know? Uh, do you have any events coming up or anything that, how, how can people get in touch with you? People can get in touch with me by going to www.tiredofhate.com or they can email me at trustayloving at tiredofhate.com. And the one thing I really want to bring people's attention to, and, and I hope they take me up on this offer, is I have a brand new book out. It's called Hate, A Progressive Disease. And I talk about many of the things that we talked about here today and many other things that I think are important to the conversation that I think that they would enjoy reading. I give a lot of true stories of where what I have faced and how I came through those things and giving some pointers in how someone who feels that they're facing something similar, they can come, uh, they can get some pointers in what they should do to, you know, to move past where they are. That's awesome. So folks can reach you at tiredofhate.com and everybody yes. should be tired of hate right about now. So go to tiredofhate.com and learn more about what Trustee's doing. You can also email Trustee at T-R-E-S-T-E loving, L-O-V-I-N-G, what an appropriate name, at <laughs> 
tiredofhate.com. <laughs> and where can we get your book? It's Hate, a Progressive Disease. Where can we get your book? Amazon.com. All you have to do is either look up the title or if you can remember my name, search me as far as an author. And like I said, I, I think for the price you're going to pay for it, that there could be no better value for you as explaining what's going on here today. Definitely. We all need to study up on this, guys, because we are the keepers of this society. We have to set the standard for how we want to live and what it means to be Americans. And I think we all want better values in this country where we value one another as individuals and respect each other and our cultures. Thank you so much, Tressie, for being on the show with me. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I truly appreciate the time. Thanks. It's been great. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you guys tune in to the show on May 24th, 2019, when my guest will be leadership coach Don Hunter. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.